Let's turn back to the book of Romans. This is where I started on Thursday night. I used Romans 1.16, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I spent the entire first service talking about what the gospel is, what salvation is, and that if a person is having a problem receiving anything that Jesus provided, it's because they don't truly understand the gospel, the grace of God. They are tying God's uh, blessing to some worth or value in their life. And that's what's stopping us is our own self-righteousness, trust in ourselves. In verse 17, it says, for therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Boy, there is a lot in that verse. I can't really stop here or I'll never get off of it. But you go study this out on your own. The righteousness of God. Most people aren't promoting God's righteousness. They're promoting their righteousness. And the only way you can really understand that it, your righteousness, your right actions can never make you accepted with God. You can't do enough good. You can't restrain from enough bad. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable. The only righteousness that is acceptable is God's righteousness. There are not very many people that understand that and believe that. I'm going to come back, maybe. Look in Romans chapter 9 or chapter 10. He's saying the same thing all the way through the book of Romans. In chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Boy, that is so typical of our religious system here in the United States. There are people that are passionate and they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. The Pharisees of Jesus' day fasted twice in the week. They paid tithes on even down to the spices in their garden. They uh, went to prayer. They stopped everything and had prayer in the middle of the day. Their entire society revolved around God. They had a zeal of God, but Paul said it wasn't according to knowledge. And you know what? That's not enough. There's a lot of people today that think it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're passionate about what you believe. It's, you know, there's many different ways to God, but that's not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's only one way and you have to have the right knowledge. We have a lot of religious people today that are passionate and they will fight you over what they believe, but it's not according to knowledge. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. And here is how he typified them. And this is so true of us today. It says in verse three, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Radical statements. They are ignorant that your righteousness, Isaiah, I think chapter 64, verse six, somewhere around there, it says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of your goodness, all of your good works, everything that we are taught to do, and there is a benefit to doing it. If I can talk fast enough, I'm going to get to these scriptures here in the book of Romans. Romans. 
But there is a benefit to living holy because it limits Satan inroad into your life. It will keep from offending people. It will keep you out of jail. It'll keep you out of poverty. It'll keep you out of divorce. It'll keep you out of somebody punching you in the mouth. If you do the right thing, there are physical benefits, but when it comes to your relationship to God, all of your goodness is worth zero. It doesn't amount to anything. God's holiness is so infinitely higher than ours that we can't obtain unto him based on our own righteousness. We have to accept a righteousness, which is a gift. And it's not human righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says, for he, speaking of God, the father made him speaking of Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. We were sinful. He knew no sin, but he took all of our sin and put it upon himself. And then God gives you his righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's not how holy you live, how well you do and all of the stuff that you can do. Your righteousness is like a filthy rag. You have to have God's righteousness that is given to you. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's so much purer and holier than what you are. It's not even worthy to be mentioned. Your goodness isn't even worthy to be mentioned along with the righteousness that God has given you. Boy, these are radical statements, radical statements. And so here in chapter 10, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and imputed righteousness, a righteousness, a right standing is what the word righteousness means. It just means a right standing with God that is not based on what you do, but it is the righteousness of God. It's his righteousness that is just put to your account. And many people are ignorant that we can receive righteousness as a gift. And instead they're trying to earn right standing with God. They are out to establish self-righteousness and they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness, which is of God by faith. Another way of saying all of this is that you can't be trusting in God's righteousness and your righteousness at the same time. If you are trying to establish your own holiness, it's like you're going in this direction. But if you are receiving it as a gift and putting faith in the Lord, you're going in this direction. They're opposite directions. You can't go in both of those directions at the same time. You cannot be trusting in your goodness and trusting in God's goodness at the same time. And the reason we are so susceptible to condemnation is because most of us are going about to establish our own righteousness. We think we have to be good enough to receive the goodness and the love of God. Man, that's, that's amazing. You know, most of you, I've given a lot of personal testimonies. And when I talk about things that God has done, most of you do not doubt that God can love you and touch your life and do things. And when I give a testimony, it's not that you doubt that it's true, but there are many of you that just somehow or another think God wouldn't do that for me. God doesn't love me that way. 
You're special. You're called into the ministry. God did something special for you. The truth is God doesn't love me. He doesn't love any person in here more than he loves another person. He loves every one of you so much that if you were the only person that would have been alive on this earth, Jesus would have died for you. That's how valuable you are to God. He loves you. And he is wanting to do awesome things beyond anything you could ask or think. Most people believe he can do that, but primarily for somebody else, you don't feel worthy because you are into a righteousness that is of your producing instead of an imputed, a gift of righteousness, a righteousness, which is a faith. That's what he was talking about. These religious people in his day, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes Christ is the end of trying to earn righteousness. Under the Old Testament, people had to do certain things to be right with God. And I hadn't got time to totally explain that, but there was a reason for that in the Old Covenant. Real quickly, let me just say this. Here's a real quick answer, and it's not a total answer, but it's a quick answer. That it's similar to your children. When your children are little tiny, they don't understand everything. You can't reason with them. And today our society is getting away from spanking your children, which the Bible teaches is a godly thing to do. It says, if you don't spank your child, you hate him. But no, we're into reasoning with them and we're into doing all of these other things. And you know what? Because of that, we have uh, kids going through uh, rebellion and all kinds of things. There's multiple reasons, but anyway, uh, it is a godly thing to correct your children. And when a child is only a year old, you can't reason with them and say, now look, that's the devil that's making you want to go take this toy from your brother or from your sister. And if you yield to the devil, the Bible says that he comes to only steal, kill, and to destroy. And you are beginning to open up your life to the devil. You are going to lose your friends. If you ever get a job, you won't be able to keep it because you're only thinking about yourself. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. When you get married, you won't be able to keep your marriage together because it's all about you and not... And if you try and explain all of this to a one-year-old, they don't understand any of that. You can't do that. But you know what a one-year-old will understand? You take that toy again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell. But the next time they have this urge to obey the devil and they, they'll, they'll think spanking and they'll say no. <laughs> you can teach a one-year-old to resist the devil. They don't understand completely, but they just know they don't like that spanking. And if you wait until they're five or six or 10 before you can reason with them, they're so out of control. They are so established in selfishness that you've lost them. And so likewise, in the Old Testament, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. People in the Old Testament couldn't be born again. They couldn't be changed. 
They didn't have a new spirit on the inside of them. They weren't possessed by the Holy Spirit. There's a few people that the Holy Spirit came upon. There's even a couple of mentions of the Holy Spirit coming in a person in the Old Testament, but he never abode there. It wasn't like we have that where he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. They weren't born again. They didn't become a new creature. They still had a dead spirit on the inside and they could not perceive spiritual truth the way that you and I can. Now, not everybody uses this perception. There's a lot of Christians today that I mean, just, it seems like that their elevator doesn't go to the top floor. They just aren't getting it. But on, but on the inside, it says in Colossians 3.10 that we have an unction, or excuse me, that's 1 John 2.20, but that's a great one too. 1 John 2.20 says we have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. Colossians 3.10 says that you put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created you. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ. Not everybody's using it, but we've got it. And so in the New Testament, we can operate in a realm that Old Testament people couldn't. They couldn't understand spiritual things. So how did you get people that were spiritually dead, that weren't born again, that couldn't comprehend spiritual truth to do the right thing? It's very similar to a child. You say you do that again and you'll be smitten with the botch, with the mildew and emrods. Do this and you'll die. And God punished people. And even though that was harsh and people think, well, that was a terrible thing to do, it restrained the amount of sin and it caused people to turn. Some people think it's harsh to spank your children, but spanking your children is better than just leaving them open to all of the lust and the desires of the devil and leaving that old sinful nature unchecked. It is, it's, it is harsh. You do spank your child and they cry. They don't like it, but you know what? It accomplishes a good purpose. It's better than the alternative. I've seen lots of people that wouldn't spank their children and what they do, they treat them. Anyway, I'm not going to go there, (laughs) but it's better than the alternative. So in a sense, the old Testament was harsh, but it was because people weren't born again and God had to use this harshness. But in the new Testament, it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now we're supposed to be relating to the Lord out of these things that I've been talking about, just understanding the goodness of God. We ought to do what's right because it's in our heart, because we've been born again to do what's right. Not because we're afraid that we're going to be punished. But the moment you go to preaching on the grace of God, the moment you go to talking about that God loves you in spite of what you do, our religious system, those that have been brought up under corporal punishment in the scriptures, the Old Testament law, those that have only served God, because if I don't serve God, God's going to curse me. God's going to blast me. God's going to do something. Those who have only used that as a motivation immediately get fearful, like well, people are going to quit serving God. Why serve God if you aren't afraid that he's going to get you anymore? How about because you love him? Under the new covenant, we have a manifestation of God's love where Jesus came and took all of our sin and all of our punishment and he suffered separation from God. You know, we just don't have a good revelation of what Jesus paid. Most people just don't have a clue. You know, when Mel Gibson came out with that show, The Passion of the Christ, I had some pastor friends of mine 
They went and saw that and they just wept and cried and said it changed their life. They would never again be the same. They just didn't realize how much Jesus had paid. And that's good. I'm not against that. But I went and saw that show and I was expecting an epiphany. I was wanting something that would just move me to another level. And I'm not critical of the show. I believe Mel Gibson did as good as anybody could do with that show. But you know what? As I watched it, it was a letdown. It was a disappointment. Because through the scripture and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus suffered a million times greater than that show could possibly portray. All it did was portray the physical things. It couldn't portray the emotional things that he went through. But through the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, I have seen the suffering of Jesus. I've had the Holy Spirit reveal it to me that I looked at that and thought, what a pitiful representation of what Jesus went through. He suffered much more than that. Isaiah 52, 13 says he didn't even look human. He didn't look like a body. He went beyond, he didn't look human. What Mel Gibson did, the guy was brutalized and it was terrible, but it still looked like a human body hanging on the cross. But the truth is Jesus didn't even look like a human being. It said his face was marred more than any face of any person in the history of the world has ever been marred. Mel Gibson didn't portray that. Plus it talks about that he hated becoming sin because he knew that that would separate him from his father. And he literally cried out. I mean, in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And in Psalms 22, the next verse says, but you are holy. O Lord, that inhabits the praises of Israel. You know why God forsook him? Because he became sin for us and he became separated. Jesus suffered everything, everything that you and I would have suffered. And if you can get a revelation of that, that will make you so thankful that you will serve God better accidentally than you've ever served God on purpose before. Once you understand the love of God, the love of Christ will go to constraining you. You know, these two ladies that I had testify this morning, I had a guy come up and he says, you know, I've enjoyed the whole conference, but those two ladies were the best thing of the whole conference (laughs) said it just touched them. And you know why they are so excited because they have been in the depths of religion. Like few of us can even imagine They have been oppressed. They have had terrible things. They've lived in agony under religious bondage. All of us have been under religious bondage, but they were in so much bondage that now they recognize their freedom. They appreciate their freedom in Christ more than many of us do. It's just like when you go to a foreign country and you see what it's like in a foreign country, you want to come back and kiss the ground. That's what my son did at 17 when he went to Russia before the Berlin Wall came down. He came back and kissed the ground. He found out that America wasn't so bad after all. Amen. (laughs) We are blessed. And sometimes you got to see what it would have been like, what other people are living like before you fully appreciate it. And we just don't fully appreciate it. Someday when we see people who are holier and better and kinder than you are cast into hell... And yet you go to heaven because you had Jesus as your savior. Someday you are going to go to appreciating God. And to the degree that you can see that now, 
you can begin to start serving God now. But every time you preach on the grace of God, it's just like what happened here. Are you back in Romans chapter one? Right after he had said all of this, for herein is the righteousness of God revealed in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You know why he starts talking about this? Because the moment you preach about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is what reveals the power of God. This is what reveals the righteousness of God. The moment you do somebody, some religious person's going to stand up and say, but you got to let them know that God's angry. You got to let them know about the wrath of God. They just can't believe that a person will serve God out of love. You got to scare people out of hell. You got to scare people into doing the right thing. That's the only way that some people operate is through fear. And so they say, but you got to let people know about the wrath of God. So the reason Paul mentioned this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm telling people about how much God loves them because the wrath of God is already. If you look at this in the Greek, when it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it means it has already been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. You will hear people today say that they have no conviction and there has to be one of two things happening. The rest of Romans chapter one tells you that a person can take progressive steps away from God and can eventually become so hardened that their conscience is seared and they become reprobate. That means they no longer are subject to God's conviction and they're damned eternally. There is no help for those people. That's one option. Or what happens with most people is in their heart, they know the truth. He has revealed himself from heaven against all unrighteousness and they're just denying it. They're saying things. You know, when people have gay pride parades and stuff, you know what they're doing? In their heart, they're convicted. In their heart, they know this is wrong and they feel this rejection and they translate it onto other people and think that you're against me. I'm not against homosexuals. I love homosexuals. I just hate homosexuality because it kills people. A couple of you believe that. You know, I did a study on this. I'm coming out with a book next year, but did you know that the suicide rate among homosexuals is three to four times as much as among any other segment of society? Did you know that the number of partners that homosexuals have, it is, it is around 500 is the average partners. And yet they try and present themselves as just an alternative lifestyle. And we're just the good old boys around the corner and we're a good home environment. It's a very destructive lifestyle. Did you know that the average homosexual dies at least 20 years? I think it's an average of 22 years earlier than a heterosexual person. You know what cigarettes do? They take off an average of seven years. And yet we have a warning on every cigarette packaged warning. This could be hazardous to your health. We ought to put a warning across every homosexual's head that this can be hazardous to your health. I don't hate homosexuals. I love them. I'm trying to help them. And I'm telling you, it's a destructive lifestyle. They know it, but they have these things and they're trying, they aren't trying to get equal rights. They're trying to get preferred treatment. They're trying to get somebody to reassure them and say, it is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It is wrong with it. It's a destructive lifestyle. If people weren't afraid, 
If they've got rid of this political correctness and told people the truth, they would tell people that this is hurting you and it is not good for you. It's very, very destructive. So anyway, every person knows in their heart the truth and it lists these progressive steps that you take away. And did you know homosexuality is right on the borderline of being reprobate? It's the last step before God just says, all right, you don't want to listen to me. I'll let you go. It's the last step. You can read that right here in Romans chapter one. And the reason he brought this up is to say, because I'm not preaching the wrath of God because everybody knows. Intuitively, you know it. The next verse, verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. In other words, the creator placed a revelation on the inside of every person that there is only one God and you are not him. Every person knows that or they have known it. Now you can deaden yourself to it. First uh, Timothy chapter four talks about you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can get to where you deny it so much that eventually you convince yourself. But everybody at one time knew this. And the next verse says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. It didn't say barely seen, hardly seen. It says they are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made. You know, or that's us. God placed an intuitive knowledge on the inside of the creation that every person who's ever been created knows there is a God and that they have sinned and come short of his glory and that they need the mercy of God. Everybody knows that. People say, what's going to happen to the people that have never heard about Jesus? I don't have a total revelation on this, but they have known that there is a God that they have come short and God reveals himself to them and they will be held accountable to the knowledge that they have. And God is love. He's going to be merciful. I can guarantee you there's not going to be anybody shaking their fist and saying it wasn't fair. People aren't acting on the information that they have. Even his eternal power and Godhead is known so that they are without excuse. So you don't have to tell people about how sorry they are. They know it. You don't have to preach the wrath of God to people. They know it. And so this is the reason he says, I'm preaching the gospel. And he'd said all of this to answer those who say, but you got to tell them about how angry God is. People know that they aren't worthy on the inside. Condemnation is just something that you, your conscience is constantly telling you that you've come short here. You've come short here. You've come short here. Your conscience is constantly telling you that you need a savior. And it's been perverted and people misinterpret it, but everybody knows it. So you don't have to tell them. And that's what the rest of the first chapter talks about. Then the second chapter says that the religious person, the Jew is doubly guilty because they not only have the inner witness of their heart, but they have the word of God who's revealed the truth to them. So they are accountable for even more because they have the written written word of God. Then in chapter three, it says where we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. And it just lumps us all into the same category. It doesn't matter whether you are a pagan or whether you've been raised in religion. Everybody knows 
that they are short of the glory of God and they need a savior. They may not understand it. They may deny it. They may pervert this and turn it into all kinds of things. That's what we see happening today. But the truth is every person knows it. Every person. Well, that'll help you when you're trying to witness to other people. When you're talking to somebody who says, I don't believe there's a God. I'm not convicted over anything I do. It's a lie. Some of you don't believe that, but that's absolutely true. Over the years of ministry, I've gotten where when a person comes and says, I don't have any conviction. There's nothing wrong with me shacking up with the person. There's nothing wrong with me doing this and this and this. People know better in their heart. That is a lie. That is a lie. In their heart, they know. And what I've learned to do is quit arguing with their head. And I I won't even justify, I won't dignify that kind of a thing with a response. I'll just go right around it and say, that's a lie. In your heart, you know that you're wrong. In your heart, you know things aren't right. And you know what? I have yet to have a person argue with me. They'll say, well, you know what? You're right. When they get by themselves, they know that they're wrong. But they will, they will build these straw men over here and argue over something and most Christians will get there and debate it. Just forget that. Go straight to their heart. In their heart, they know that they're wrong. Every person knows that they need God. And, you, and this is what these things are saying. So then it uses two examples in the fourth chapter. That's Abraham and David. Abraham was the person that was the father of the faith. He was the one that everything hinged on. And Paul used him to show that in Genesis 15, six, God told him, count the stars in the sky, count the grains of sand on the seashore. If you can number them, that's how numerous your children are going to be. And Genesis 15, six says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul quotes that and says, that's when he became righteous. It was before It was at least 17 years before God gave the covenant of circumcision, which the Jews said a man had to do to be in right standing with God. And they were preaching that you have to do this. And Paul pointed out that Abraham was justified, righteous. It was counted righteous to him because he believed God, not because of these things. He did those things as a response to being righteous with God, not a way to obtain righteousness with God. I don't know if you got that, but that is a radical truth. And it just completely undid the Jews. And then he used David as an example. And David said in Psalms chapter 32, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes not sin. And when Paul quoted it right here, he said in verse Six, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom the Lord, uh, in, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He was, David didn't experience what he was writing about. He was looking forward to our day saying, Man, these people. Man, they are blessed. The people whose sins are forgiven. David's sins weren't forgiven. They were covered, but they weren't forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sins. Old Testament people, in a sense, were saved on credit, looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. We're saved looking back. We got a debit card. We aren't doing it on credit. We're debiting the account. 
It's already done. And David is saying, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not. He didn't say does not, did not, but will not. Oh, that's a radical statement. Most Christians can't embrace this because this is so counter to our religious culture. People think every time you sin, you lose your relationship with God. If you're the ultra Pentecostal, you lose your salvation every time you sin and you're backslid. And if you die backslid, you die and go to hell, even though you might've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years. That's the ultra Pentecostal. Every time you sin, you lose it and you're backslid and you got to be born again, again. So you're born again, 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 over and over and over and you're in and you're out and you just hope that you don't have a car wreck with an unconfessed sin in your life. And a lesser interpretation of the same thing is, oh no, you don't go to hell every time you sin, but you lose your fellowship. You can't get a prayer answered. You lose your joy. God won't bless you. That's, that's the exact same thing. It's like the same stick just holding a different place on the stick. It's the, it's the same thing, just lesser consequences, but you're, you're going to suffer for your sin. But David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Your sins are all forgiven, past, present, and even sins that you haven't committed yet. Some of you are just, uh, how can God forgive a sin before I commit it? Well, he only died for sins one time, 2000 years ago. If your sins got forgiven, he had to forgive them before you committed them. This whole thing, if you got to get every sin under the blood, you can't do it. Some of you are sinning, don't even know it. (laughs) Did you know that gluttony is a sin? You know what gluttony is? It's eating more than you need, more often than you need it. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm overweight. God loves me. But you know, so I just can't control it. You can't control it. The only way you can get fat is to overeat. I guarantee you don't eat for the next year and you will not be fat. (laughs) Who was it? Irma Bombeck or somebody on her tombstone wrote, you wanted skinny, you got skinny. (laughs) She put that on her tombstone. I'm not mad at anybody who's overweight, but I'm saying, you know what? That's sin. It's habitual sin too, because you can't get fat off of one meal. You could eat until you passed out and you might gain a few pounds, but you would not be fat. The only way you get fat is to overeat all of the time and do it on a regular basis. And so people who think that, you know, how could God use you if you If you have sin in your life, if you're overweight, you're constantly sinning. Some of us are constantly critical and just judging everybody. It says in Psalms chapter one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Many of us walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, I'm going to try not to be political here, but I just wonder sometimes how Christians can put people in office that everything they believe is against what the Bible teaches. And yet there are Christians that will do it because they are on the take 
because this is whatever. I tell you what, it just, there are people who are walking in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the seat of the scornful. That's people who are criticizing, nor stands in the way of sinners. There are Christians who do those things. And you know what? That's sin. If you are one of those that think God can't fellowship with you, if you have any sin in your life, you're never going to fellowship with God because the truth is all of us miss it constantly in some area. And your own conscience is going to be condemning you every time you do something wrong. And if you think that you've got to be worthy for God to fellowship with you, you'll never fellowship with him. You'll listen to my stories and you'll say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh, God, help me to have a relationship with you. But you won't allow it yourself because your own conscience is condemning you. And you are going about to establish your own righteousness instead of receiving the gift of righteousness. Boy, these are powerful statements. And so he shows that the two of the greatest people in the Old Testament, Abraham and David, had this revelation of a righteousness that comes as a gift, not something that you work and earn. And he uses that to show that even in the old covenant, this New Testament grace and righteousness was revealed. It was prophesied about. And so this isn't counter to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was not given to justify you. It was given to show you your need for justification. If you use the law for what it's intended, that's just fine. But to use the law to be right with God, righteous, in right standing, it can't happen. The law doesn't ever tell you that you're good. The law doesn't ever tell you that God loves you. All the law will do is show you where you're wrong and say, this is wrong. And the judgment for this is this. The law can't make you have a relationship with God. All it can do is show you that you need relationship with God. Only grace can bring you into the presence of God and have, and let you experience the goodness of God. And this is the points that he's making. And so in chapter five, he starts saying, we read this this morning, therefore being justified by faith, you have peace with God. This is the only way you can ever have peace with God is to just put faith in Jesus and receive a righteousness, which is a faith righteousness, not a works righteousness. Oh, that's powerful. And then he said this in Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I've actually used this verse during this series, but most people take this verse out of context and just say that God loves sinners. And you know what? That's true. But that is not the point that's being made. What he's doing is using this as a stepping stone to a greater truth. Here's the point that's being made. He says in verse eight, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse nine, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Then verse 10 puts these two thoughts into one verse. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The point that he's making isn't that God loves sinners. That is a true statement. But the point is that if God loved you while you were yet a sinner, that he died for you, how much more does he love you now that you have accepted his salvation? 
And yet the average religious person actually experienced the love of God more when they were sinners than when they were saints. Because before you were a sinner, you were out here living like a sinner does. You were, you know, you were acting like a sinner. Amen. You were doing everything wrong and you knew that it wasn't right, but you didn't know how wrong it was. Now you are born again. You love God and you want to serve him. And I tell you, some of you used to be able to go out and drink and commit adultery and lie and steal and do everything and basically just shrug it off. Now that you're born again, you don't read your Bible and you get to feeling like, oh God, I've just failed you. You never had that conviction before. (laughs) You're more sensitive to God than you've ever been. If you are a person that lives under condemnation, it shows that you really have a desire to live for God. You're just doing a poor job of it. And, and religion amplifies on this. And so most religious people actually are enjoying the love of God less after they're born again than they did before they were born again, because you're more sensitive to everything you do wrong. And you are so hard on yourself and condemning yourself and religion just puts a magnifying glass on it and makes you feel guilty over things that you never even felt guilty over before. But it's just the opposite. We ought to expect God to love us even more now. If when you were living in total sin and rebellion, Jesus died for you, how much more does he love you now? Even though you haven't read your Bible today, even though you didn't pray an hour in tongues today, even though you didn't go to church last week, God still loves you. And I wished I could deal with the last few chapters, a few verses of Romans chapter five. I've got bunches of teaching on this. These verses were a breakthrough for me. It totally changed my life. But I want to go into Romans chapter six. And here is a radical statement. Paul said in Romans chapter six, what shall we say then? In other words, this is a result of talking about the goodness of God, the grace of God. God loves you. If he loved you while you were a sinner so much that he had died for, he loves you a million times more now that you're a Christian, even though you may be a sorry Christian. God loves you. He's passionate about you. God carries a picture of you in his wallet. God's got an eight by 10 of you on his mantle in heaven. God loves you. Some of you, it's just, uh, I'm not sure about this. He does. Take my word for it. And because of these things, when you say things like that, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse two, God forbid. Did you know in the Greek language, this God forbid is an absolute unqualified negative. It's as close to using profanity as you can get. Matter of fact, one translation says, well, blank, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's what a Bible translation says. And that is the gist of what Paul is saying. Am I saying that you can just go live in sin? No, absolutely not. That is not what Paul is saying. But here is a great truth. Before I give you his answer here, this is an awesome truth. If what you are listening to people say never causes this question to come up. Are you just saying that it's, I can live in sin? 
because God loves me in spite of what I do? do? If that question never comes up, then you haven't heard the gospel that Paul preached. Because Paul said this four times. He said it twice in this chapter and he also said this twice over in the book of Galatians. Paul constantly was having to, when he talked about the grace of God, he would have to say, now, am I saying that you can just go live in sin? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying, but that is a logical question. And let me just propose this. I bet you that 99% of you in the church that you go to have never had that question come up when the preacher's preaching because they just preach against sin and God's angry and God won't bless you if you live in sin. And this is a question that doesn't come up when most people preach. And that's because they aren't preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. If you truly emphasize the grace of God, you're going to have to deal with this. Can I just live? Are you saying I can live in sin? No, that's not what I'm saying, but it, God loves us so much and he's already forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. He's not going to hold them against you. He's not going to punish you. He's not going to withdraw from you. He's not going to fail to answer your prayer. He's not going to turn off the spigot of joy because you haven't done something right. He's not going to just let your kids suffer and let you suffer because after all, you aren't the person that you're supposed to be. And if you emphasize that, it's a logical thought about, well, then can I just do anything I want to? And here's two answers, two reasons that he gives here in the sixth chapter. He says in uh, the second verse, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Man, this is a big statement. You are dead to sin. And some of you are thinking, I'm not dead to sin. (laughs) I can sin with the best of them. Man, if I was to let go of the reins and just let myself go, there's no telling what I'd do. (laughs) The Bible says you're dead to sin. So which is it? You know, I could preach on this for a day. I don't even know why I opened up this can of worms because I'm not going to be able to answer this 100%. But here's the quick answer. That when you got born again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says you became a new creature. Old things passed away. All things became new. Now that's not talking about your physical body. Because if you were a man before you got saved, you're still going to be a man after you got saved. If you were short before you got saved, you're going to be short after you got saved. If you were fat before you got saved, you'll be fat after you get saved. Your physical body doesn't change. And it's not talking about your brain either. If you weren't very smart before you got saved, you won't be very smart after you get saved. Now you can begin to change that, but it doesn't happen automatically. If you had bad thoughts and bad memories, you're still going to have bad thoughts and bad memories after you get saved. Your body and your soul are not saved. So by process of elimination, you can limit this to this is talking about in your spirit is where old things passed away. All things became new. Your spirit is the only part of you that's saved. And John 4, 24 says God is a spirit and God looks at you in the spirit. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. When you come before God and say, oh God, I failed you and I'm such a sinner and I'm so sorry. 
You aren't in spirit. You're in flesh. You're standing before him in your physical body based on what you've done. And you cannot worship God unless you're in spirit. Your spirit is the part of you that got born again and that was made brand new. And there is no sin in it. You are as perfect and pure in your spirit as Jesus is. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 4. In verse 17, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. It didn't say, so are we going to be in the next world, but you are right now identical to Jesus. That's not talking about in your actions. That's not talking about in your emotions and in your thoughts, but in your spirit, you're identical. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. That word one there is hes, H-E-I-S, and it means a singular one to the exclusion of another. You aren't similar. You aren't going in parallel directions where God is way up here and your spirit's way down here. You are identical in the spirit realm. If there's ounces and molecules, you are ounce for ounce, molecule for molecule, identical to Jesus. And on and on and on, I could go talking about all of the things that are true in the spirit. You need to get my teaching on spirit, soul, and body. And that's what that will explain to you. But one of the things that happened in your spirit when you got born again, it is dead to sin. It's incapable of sin. Your spirit can not sin. It has no propensity for sin. It has no desire to sin. You in your nature at your core being are not a sinner. You aren't an old sinner that got saved by grace. You are an old sinner that got saved by grace. And now you are the righteousness of God. You are a brand new creature. Somebody says, well, then why is it that I seem to have this desire to sin? And I always want to do what's wrong. Your spirit has been changed but you've got the same brain and the rest of the Christian life. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how you change. Your spirit is hot after God, 100% for God. If you're truly born again, you were changed in the spirit and your spirit only wants what God wants, but you have a mind that has been programmed all wrong. Your mind is similar to a computer and you can teach it how to do things. And over repetition, it just becomes like it's your nature, but it's really not your nature. You know, when I was a kid, I had trouble buttoning my shirt. I don't know why, but I remember my dad bunches of times saying, you buttoned your shirt wrong again. And he tried to teach me so many times. I just, I don't know. I just buttoned my shirt wrong. I remember that. And you know what? Today I buttoned my shirt and it's right. (laughs) But I don't even remember it. I don't even remember. It was just like it was my nature. I just did it and I didn't even think about it. I can button my shirt now without anybody's help. Jamie didn't dress me. I know I did it. (laughs) And so you could think, well, now it's my nature, but it's not my nature. I remember when I couldn't do it. It's an acquired trait that has been repeated so many times. Now it just comes naturally. Did you know that you used to have a spirit that was dead to God? 
dead to righteousness. All it was alive to was sin. All it wanted to do was be selfish. All it wanted to do was indulge your feelings and your flesh. And that old sin nature taught you how to be self-centered, how to be bitter, how to be angry, how to lust, how to lie, how to do things. And you have repeated it so many times that now you don't have that old sin nature anymore. It's gone. You are dead to sin. But you know what? You still, it just seems like it comes naturally because your mind was programmed like a computer and it's going to continue to function the way it functions until you reprogram it. And that's what this word is. This word is how you reprogram your mind. And you say, that's not me anymore. But see, if you think you still have an old sin nature, And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the NIV really, 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 really blew all of this interpretation of Romans chapter six, because it will constantly refer to the sin nature. You do not have a sin nature. Your old man is dead and it does not resurrect. It doesn't have any resurrection power. You are dead unto sin. The only reason that we are still sinning so much is because we haven't reprogrammed ourselves, and you still got the same unrenewed mind. You still think the same way. And as quickly as you can change your thinking, you can quit acting like an old sinner. You don't have to go out and lust and do all of this stuff. You can change that. Boy, that really helped me when I saw that it is my, my nature to go live like this. See, before I understood this, I would just resist things token. I'd say, oh God, help me not to do this. Oh God, I don't want to do this. And I, God, help me to live for you. But you know what? After a while, if I just kept having the desire, I thought, that's the way I am. I'm an old sinner. This is my nature. And I just give in and indulge myself. Now I know that, no, that is not who I am. And this When you start seeing yourself, this is who I am and that I have the same righteousness of God, you know what? You'll start acting like how you see yourself. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you are living a life that's way down here and you are living like an animal and not doing the right thing, it's because you have a very, 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 very low opinion of yourself. You start seeing who you are and that Jesus has made you a new creature and that you are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus and it'll start being reflected in your actions. That's a powerful truth. And so the number one reason that you don't live in sin is because you're dead to it. It is not your nature. It says over in 1 John chapter 3, It says, behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Then it says, beloved, now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he, Jesus shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And then verse three says, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. If you ever really had the hope, and if you saw that you already have this love and you are like him, if you really saw this, you would purify yourself. This wouldn't encourage you to go live in sin. 
People say you're giving people a license to sin. No, I'm giving you the freedom that you don't have to live in sin anymore. It's been broken over you. This doesn't set you free to sin. This sets you free from sin. I no longer have to live like a slave to sin. I'm not an old sinner saved by grace. I was an old sinner and I got saved by grace. And now I am the righteousness of God and I can resist the devil and I do not have to give in to sin. Boy, I wish I had time. I'm talking as fast as I can. But I'm just going to summarize. There's a few verses here. He says, Jesus died unto sin once, but he does not live unto sin anymore. He became a sinner one time and took our sin in his own body, but he is dead to sin. Likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead in unto sin but alive unto God. That's verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin. The same way that Jesus is. Do you think that Jesus is still struggling with sin? Do you think that Jesus is in heaven saying, oh, Father, help me to make it through the day without sinning? (laughs) Jesus is dead to sin. You need to reckon yourself. You here in Washington, D.C. may not use that, but in Texas, that's a good word. Are you coming over tonight? I reckon so. That means you can count on it. Amen. You reckon it to be so. You count on it. This is some, it's a done deal. You need to reckon yourself to be dead. Likewise, the way that Jesus is, you are dead unto sin. If you quit seeing yourself as an old sinner, then you'd quit living like an old sinner. If you ever saw that, man, God has forgiven me. God has made me righteous and holy and pure. You would start reproducing that in your actions and in your thoughts. You wouldn't watch the junk that you watch. If you were truly thinking about you being righteous and holy and pure. And then the second thing that he mentions here in Romans chapter six, the second reason that you live holy, it says in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The second reason, first reason is it's not your nature to sin. You're dead to sin. And if you'd renew your mind, that's two against one. Your spirit, soul, and body, your spirit is now dead to sin. It's always for God. You get your mind in agreement with your spirit and it's just two against one and your body will not go sin. But then the second reason is, don't you understand that if you yield to sin, you yield to the devil. You open up the door and you just allow him in. And the Bible makes it very clear in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill and to destroy. But Jesus has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If you go out and live in sin, God loves you because he's already forgiven your sin. He's not dealing with you based on your performance. It's all based on Jesus. But every time you go out and live in sin, you are just throwing open the door to the devil and say, shoot your worst. Satan is the author of all sickness and disease, poverty, sorrow, grief, depression, anger, bitterness, hurt, anything that's bad. Satan is the one who does it and you just welcome him in. And people don't even realize this. James chapter three, verse 16 says that um, where envying and strife is, 
There is confusion in every evil work. First Corinthians 14 says God isn't the author of confusion. So that means Satan is the author of confusion. So when it says James 3, 16, where envying and strife is, there's confusion. It's saying there is the devil and every evil work. Sometimes people don't connect these dots and they think, well, man, I'm confessing the scriptures over healing. I'm saying by his stripes, I'm healed. I'm doing everything. I fast, I pray, but you know what? You're mean. You have strife. You speak to your kids like you wouldn't speak to a dog. You'd treat a dog better than some of you treat your kids. You yell at people. You say things to people. You open up the door to strive. And you know, that's just the way I was raised. All of the stuff we watch on television, they all fight and they criticize and backbite and do this. And so it's the culture we live in. It's just the way that it is. You don't think anything about it. But the Bible says where envying and strife is, there is the devil and every evil work. You may be confessing healing scriptures over here, but you are just allowing the devil to come in big time with your envy and strife. And you are having sickness and problems and saying, I just can't understand why I can't believe God for my healing. God loves you. It's not God holding back, but you chase the devil out the front door and he comes in the back door, the side doors and through all of the windows, seven times worse. You're saying, I, I give, I pay my tithes. I'm believing God for prosperity. How come nothing ever works for me? And you're just as mean as a snake. You have unforgiveness in your heart. You're bitter and God loves you. He's not mad at you, but you have just given the devil a free shot and he's stealing from you and taking from you. And you don't even connect these dots. I believe in living holy, but I believe in living holy. Number one, because it's my nature to live holy, not because I have to do it for God to love me. God loves me even when I'm not holy. But I do it because it's my nature. I I want to live holy. I'd rather live holy. I don't want to live in sin. But second thing, I'm also aware that I've got an adversary, the devil, who's going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I'm trying not to give him an inroad into my life. Man, I shut every door I can on the devil. If I had unforgiveness towards somebody, that's like drinking poison and thinking that'll show them. (laughs) Unforgiveness doesn't hurt the person that you're mad at. It's poisoning you. You have envy and strife in your heart and every evil work is coming and you're just stupid for operating in unforgiveness. But God loves you, stupid. (laughs) Did you know if you never went to church again, God would love you exactly the same. He does not keep church attendance. And if you come so many times, that equals one answered prayer. (laughs) If you never go to church again, God loves you exactly the same but you won't love God the same because you, if you aren't in church, you're going to be somewhere and you're probably going to be at home watching as the stomach turns on television. (laughs) And you're going to be watching something that is not building you up, medifying you. You need to be around believers. You need to be under the word. You need to be having Christians that exhort you to live for God. If you don't go to church, you're stupid, but God loves you, stupid. If you never pay your tithes, did you know God loves you exactly the same? But he gave you seeds. Some you're supposed to eat, some you're supposed to plant. 
If you ate every seed God gives you, God will love you exactly the same, but you will go hungry. You're stupid if you don't start planning and giving and trusting God, but God loves you, stupid. You can take everything and God loves you regardless of what you do. But does that mean that you go live in sin? God forbid. It's not your nature to live in sin. If you knew the truth, the truth would set you free from sin. And also it's just giving Satan an absolute inroad into your life. You know, I'm not going to mention their names, but there were some very famous ministers that at one time was reaching more people on television than any person in the history of the world. And this guy went out and he says he didn't have sexual relationships with the prostitute. He just hired them and watched them strip. I find hard to believe. I personally would doubt that that is true, but let's just assume that what he said is true, but he was exposed and you know what? He's lost everything. He now is just on a couple of stations, but did you know what? God still loves that man. That man's born again. He had a calling on his life and the Bible says in Romans eleven twenty nine 29, that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. And you know what? He can't help but preach. That's what he was made to do. And the guy still preaches and he still sees people born again. But at one time, this is back 20 something years ago, he had $8 million a month coming in. The largest Christian ministry in the history of the world. I don't know, but I'd be surprised if he has a million dollars a month coming in. He probably has around a hundred thousand or less. He's just a fraction. And yet, did you know that God loves him exactly the same? God hadn't taken his anointing off of him. God will still use him as much as he will let him use him. But boy, has he paid a price. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. You are absolutely stupid to be living in sin, but God loves you, stupid. God doesn't change in his attitude and you can run back to the Lord and you can still be in fellowship with God. But man, you are just absolutely stupid. Did you go? I would be crazy to take what God has given me and the opportunities I've got to influence people and go out and commit adultery or something that would hurt this ministry and cause people to lose faith in me and quit trusting me. And it hurt my income and it'd do that. And it would just be stupid. But you know, God would love me the same. I believe he'd be disappointed, but he'd love me just as much. And when I repented and said, God, I'm so sorry. Why did I do this? God would love me the same, but that is just, why would I do that? Why would anybody do this? Sin isn't smart. It's emotional. If you sat down and thought about it, sin is never worth it. It's never worth it. You indulge your feelings. It's a very immature thing. And once you understand what God has done for you, you know what? You can start living a holy life, not in order to get God to bless you, but because God has blessed you. You can do it out of love and gratitude instead of trying to earn God's favor. Holiness doesn't change God's attitude towards you nor does unholiness change God's attitude towards you because God loves you separate from your performance. But holiness will change your attitude towards God. 
It'll make you love God more. If you study the word, it doesn't make God love you more, but it'll make you love God more. You need to study the word. You need to do all of these right things. We need to pray. We need to fast, but fasting doesn't make God love me more. It doesn't make God give me more power. It doesn't make the anointing increase. Fasting changes my heart towards God. It deals with a hard heart and gets rid of my unbelief. It doesn't affect God. God loves me the same whether I fast or don't fast. He loves me the same whether I pray or don't pray. He loves me the same whether I give or don't give. He loves me the same whether I study the word or don't study the word. But if I'll do those things, I'll love God more and I'll be stronger in my faith. And I do it because it's my nature to do it. And because I know that if I don't do it, I'm giving inroad to the devil. And I do not want to encourage Satan. He is out to kill me and destroy me. And I'm not going to give him that inroad into my life. This is a totally different motive for serving God than what most Christians have. Most Christians serve God out of fear that he will reject them to some degree, either totally or partially. And they're serving him out of fear. And it says in 1 John 4, 18, fear has torment. And most Christians are tormented in their relationship with God. They're afraid that if they don't do everything just right, he'll reject them. You know, what kind of friend would I be if I was friendly towards you when you were doing everything I wanted you to, but do the slightest little thing wrong, do something to displease me and I'll just drop you walk away from you, criticize you. You know what? You would not want to be my friend. And yet this is the impression that's been given of God, that God only loves us when we're worth loving. Only when we're doing everything right, will God stick with us. That is not true. And God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I don't care how much you've messed up. Some of you hate yourself. You've messed up your life and messed up other people's lives. And you just, how could God love you? You don't love yourself. But God's a spirit and he's looking at you in the spirit. And if you've accepted Jesus, you're a brand new person. And he looks at you and he says, perfect, holy, righteous. And you've got to get out of your self-righteousness. You got to quit going about to establish your own righteousness. And you've got to start saying, Father, thank you that I am righteous, not through what I've done, but through Jesus. He was made sin for me so that I could become the righteousness of God. I am now the righteousness of God. I'm as righteous as Jesus is. I'm as holy as Jesus is. I'm as pure as Jesus because he gave me all of his righteousness and all of his purity. I don't deserve it, but I've got it. I embrace it. It's mine. And I approach God on the basis of who I am in Christ, not on the basis of my own personal actions. And because of that, if an angel was to stand in between me and God, I could let him be accursed is what Paul said in Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine. I can curse him and say, get out of my way because of Jesus. I am righteous and holy and able to come into the presence of God. No angel can stop me. No demon can stop me. The only thing that stops me from enjoying the presence of God is my unbelief and my self-righteousness. When I get to looking at myself, I don't deserve it. And I've got to stay focused on who I am in the spirit and approach God in spirit and in truth. Man, this is good news. This is the gospel. This is nearly too good to be true news. 
What a deal. And brothers and sisters, there's just so much more I'd love to say, but the heart can absorb more than the seat can endure. So I'm going to come to an end, but you know what? I'd encourage you to get the CDs and the DVDs of these five services. Cause I've said things that many of you may not have heard somebody say before, or if you hear it, you don't hear it in a concentrated form and you don't hear it often enough. This is the kind of stuff you need to go over it and over it. And it would really, really help you. So I encourage you to please take advantage of it. Again, I want to say if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, Man, this should make it crystal clear to you why you need to be saved. It's not about just believing that God exists or that Jesus is the son of God. It's accepting his righteousness, right standing with God, not based on what you do, but you make Jesus your savior. If there's anybody in here who's been about to establish your own righteousness and you've been trying to please God by your own goodness instead of doing it through the mercy of God, then you need to change. You need to move over into a righteousness which comes from God. And if you have been born again, and if you are changed, then you need the power of the Holy Spirit to release this life of God that's on the inside of you. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's many things involved, but speaking in tongues is part of it. Speaking in tongues is just like flipping a switch. It's turning on the power of God And it starts supernaturally making a difference in your life. If you don't have that, you need it. We've had probably 300 people in the last four services come and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Man, that's awesome. And some of you didn't realize I'm a Pentecostal tongue talker, whatever, because I don't scream and shout and I sit down and you didn't know what you was getting into, but you know what? You're in one of those holy roller meetings and they are going to talk about you. So you might as well give them something to talk about. Amen. How many of you in here already have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues? Look at this. See, you're in the midst of tongue talkers. How many of you would recommend it? I tell you what, you need this. This changed my life more than anything else. You need this. Is there anybody in here who either needs this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, or you don't know Jesus personally and you would like to be born again? Anybody here like that? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Praise the Lord. There's still people all over. Thank you, Jesus. Awesome. Those of you that raised your hand, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you and help you to receive right now. Let's praise God for all of these. Amen. Praise God, brother. Awesome. 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 Yes, sir. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't this great? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Boy, this is just tremendous. Do you know the baptism of the Holy Spirit changed my life outwardly more than being born again did. 
I believe that born again is absolutely essential. It's the first step. It's necessary. But Jesus didn't do any miracles until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he told us not to go out and preach and tell anybody anything until we receive power through the Holy Spirit coming on us. I think one of the reasons that we have so many problems in our church today is because people have been born again, but they don't get empowered by the Holy Spirit and they go out and try and represent God in their own self. I tell you, this is going to change your life. You know, I'm aware that some of you are leaving, but would you please uh, not make noise, not talk so that this doesn't distract because this is really important what's happening right here. And we want to make sure that these people aren't distracted, that they receive from God. Amen. So this is really important. Before you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. The scripture says Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive the gift, the giver, before you receive the gift. Is there anybody here who's not absolutely sure whether or not you've made Jesus your personal Savior? You may believe that he exists, but have you made him your Lord? Have you submitted your life to him? Is there anybody who's not sure? We need to pray with you first. Here's one down here. Praise God. Here's another one. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Here's another one down here. Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but you just got to be sure. And there's a lot of people that are just going through life hoping so. Well, I, I think so. The Bible says that if you have been born again, you have a witness in yourself and you know that you've passed from death unto life. You know it. If you don't know it, you need to make sure and you need to be born again and get this witness in yourself. Anybody else? Everybody else is sure. Awesome. All right, we're going to pray with these three down here. And the scripture says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's already paid for your sins. It's already been done. It's just a matter of will you receive it? Will you reach out and take what God has offered you? Y'all willing to do that? You willing to do that? Amen. Well, what I'm going to do is lead you in a prayer and I'd like everybody to repeat this after me so that we won't So you won't feel like we're just listening. And if you will repeat these words and mean them in your heart, you'll be born again. Isn't that awesome? Jesus has already paid for it. All you got to do is receive it. So let's say this. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive, that you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. You believe that? You believe that? Awesome. Praise God. Hallelujah. You may or may not feel anything, but according to the word of God, you become this brand new person on the inside. You're a totally new creation. And the rest of the Christian life is educating your brain to what has happened in your spirit. 
Man, that's awesome. Now, according to the word of God, every person up here is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you get born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what he created you for. And the reason I always emphasize this is because God made you to fill with the Holy Spirit. That's what he created you for. So he wouldn't ever deny you the Holy Spirit. He wants you to have it. This is what he created you for. So we aren't going to beg. We aren't going to have to plead. He just wants you to open the door a crack and he'll come flooding in. So we're just going to open up the door of our temple and say, Father, we welcome you to come in. We want to be filled. He won't force himself. You have to give him permission. You have to unlock the door. He's knocking and you have to open up the door. And so we're just going to ask. We aren't going to beg. And then I'm going to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. They're going to lay hands on you. The Bible says that when the disciples laid hands on people, that the Holy Spirit came upon them. So we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us and we're going to pray with you and lay hands on you and release this power and anointing to come into your life. And then after we lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking and take a step of faith and say, Father, thank you that you gave me the Holy Spirit. And out loud, I want you to start praising him and thanking him for giving you the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like. We aren't asking for a feeling. We're asking for the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to ask, they're going to lay hands on you. And then after that, I want you to lift your hands and start thanking him like this. The Bible says, when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's a way of showing you surrender. Just like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender. And so we're going to ask, they're going to lay hands on you. You're going to lift your hands and start thanking God. And then those of us that know how to pray in tongues are going to pray in tongues Because the Bible says when you pray in tongues, you're giving thanks. Well, you're praising God. That's what you're doing. You don't understand it, but you, your spirit is praising God in a heavenly language. So we're going to start praising God with you. And I want you to quit thanking him in English and start thanking him in tongues and start speaking in tongues with us. And you can do it. The number one thing that people, number one mistake people make is they think that the Holy Spirit's going to force you to talk in tongues. It doesn't happen that way. He doesn't take your mouth. He just inspires it. Acts 2, 4 says they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. The Holy Spirit gives you the desire to speak in tongues and the leading to speak in tongues, but he doesn't talk in tongues. You have to make sounds. You have to talk. I'll explain this in a book I'm going to give every one of you. But if you're ready, you can just begin to start speaking. And I promise you, over a period of time, God will confirm this to you. And it'll be one of the most powerful experiences. You bypass the doubt, the unbelief, the confusion that's in your mind. And you start praying out of this born again part of you that's perfect and pure. And it's, it's a powerful, powerful thing. And this book will explain it in more detail. But that's what we're going to do. Are you ready? This was a question. Are you ready? The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, thank you for all of these. And thank you, Jesus, that we are now born again. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That this is what you created us for. You want to fill us. And so we open up the doors of this temple. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into our life. 
We want you to come into our life. We want your power. We want this gift of speaking in tongues, all of the other gifts that you have for us. We welcome you to come and just fill us with your power now in Jesus' name. Now we lay hands on you and we release this power to come into you right now. We loose the anointing of God and we say unto you, receive the Holy Spirit right now in Jesus' name. Receive the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Brother, there's the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit right now. Father, we loose this anointing to flow into these bodies now in Jesus' name. Thank you for filling them with the Holy Spirit right now in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Father. Oh, that's the power of God. Now I want you to put your hands up. Start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. Thank Him out loud. Talk and just, Father, I thank you that you have kept your word. You have filled me with the Holy Spirit. From this time forth, I have your supernatural power flowing in me. I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit functioning in my life. I thank you, Jesus, that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Now, those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's start speaking in tongues. Start worshiping and thanking God. And those of you down here, now quit praying in English and switch over into speaking in tongues. You have to make sounds. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear somebody behind you saying, but your tongue's going to be different. It'll be unique to you. If you try and say what they're saying, it'll come out different. Just keep talking. Don't quit. Just let it go. Flow. Let's speak in tongues. Worship God. You're bypassing your brain. It may not sound like much of a language to you. It's like a little baby when they first talk. It doesn't sound like a language, but the parent knows what they're saying. The parent knows what they're trying to say. God's listening to your heart. God's hearing your heart right now. You're praying to God without the confusion and the unbelief of your mind. Just worship God. Speak loud. Talk. Be bold with it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for filling all of these with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is powerful. Many, many of these are speaking in tongues. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know, some of you may just be thrilled. You may be experiencing edification. When I first prayed, and asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. And I was actually disappointed. I was wanting this rush. I didn't feel a thing. And also I didn't pray in tongues for three years. 
but that's because I was a Baptist. And I'd been told that all of this was of the devil and I had so much fear and confusion about it. It just, it like clogged up the pipes and it couldn't flow through me because I had so much junk. But I had to get my questions answered. I've been to the word. I've now got scriptural explanation for everything about speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you a book because nobody had more trouble praying in tongues than I did. And yet I can pray in tongues a long, long time now. So I believe that whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe you have this gift of speaking in tongues. You just need to get your mind renewed and understand some things. And this book will help you. So I want to give a book. It's a free book to every one of you because this is really important. This could make the biggest difference in your life that you've ever had. This will make your relationship with God just explode. It'll make the love of God come into your life. It's what it says in Romans 5, 5. But you need to understand to get the full benefit. So what I'd like you to do is to follow Ashley over here. He's the man that's got his Bible in the air right there. And if you would follow him, he's going to give you a free book. There's people there that will pray with you, that will help you any way they can. And we just want you to get the full benefit of what happened to you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this awesome? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise the Lord. You know, some of these have been down here more than once. I guess it's because they didn't speak in tongues, so they just keep coming. But like I said, it took me a while, but you know what? It's worth persevering for. And when I finally spoke in tongues, I thought that, you know, I could have done that three and a half years before. I was waiting on God to just make something happen, and I nearly kicked myself. But you know, God's patient. He put up with me and praised God. I speak in tongues a lot. I could give hundreds and hundreds of testimonies about how God is used speaking in tongues to change my life. But we've seen a lot of miracles. We've seen, I don't know, 350 people or more come forward. That's pretty awesome. Again, I want to thank all of you for coming. I believe that this series of meetings, you've been as receptive as any group I've ministered to. I believe that the power of God has been free to minister. And I really believe that if you get these uh, CDs or DVDs, it would be good for you to go back through it. And also I know that every one of you have family members, church members, or somebody that needs to hear this. And uh, sometimes when you try and tell them, it's just hard for people to get it. But you know what? You can give them the CDs or the DVDs. And it's a great way of sharing these truths. You could do a Bible study. And they invite some people over and say, hey, let's watch these and talk about it and let them criticize it. I don't care. I'm not there. <laughs> and just discuss it and talk about it. I guarantee you it'll bring some things up. It's a good deal to deal with and it'll be good. If you'd like prayer, this is our last opportunity. I'd like to encourage you to come. Let one of our prayer ministers here pray for you. Praise God for all of these prayer ministers that are helping us out. Isn't this wonderful? Praise God. If you need prayer, come forward and let us pray with you right now. 
And we're going to continue to see great, great miracles happen in your life as you come. The rest of you, again, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And let's you go out and make disciples and tell people the nearly too good to be true news of the gospel. And if you'll do that, that'll be awesome. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>